As the year comes to a close and many of us enter the holiday season, the Women Who Code podcast will be taking a short hiatus. We've been so excited to bring you new episodes weekly since the big relaunch in September, and we'll be right back at it after the new year. But for now, enjoy some clips from seasons new and old as we celebrate women in technology and the incredible things they are accomplishing. I think this is so important. And one thing that actually makes me so sad is I think a lot of people um, are really unhappy in their jobs. And sometimes I talk to friends who are like, oh, I feel really burnt out. Um, or, you know, they're they're switching industries or they're switching careers because they don't feel either valued or they don't feel like their work is really aligning with either personal intention or personal goals or personal values. Um, and I think it's really heartbreaking because I do feel like there is the ability for each of us to spend our time every day. Um, you know, we're spending hours and most of our day in uh, in work and it should be work that we feel like we enjoy and is, we're gaining something out of and we feel, we'll feel fulfilled by it. Um, and for me, as I've grown in my career, I feel like the key areas that I've discovered um, that make this work more meaningful is one, do I feel like I'm working on a product or do I feel like I'm working for a company that is doing something that I think is positive or impactful and is, is creating something new or valuable for whoever their customers are? And then two, Am I working for people, whether it's, you know, the founders or leadership or teams that I actually like to be around and respect and show up with and interact with every day? Um, so I think about that a lot because I think sometimes we make decisions because we think, you know, this is a really um, like like people talk about this company a lot it's it's very exciting it looks good on my resume or we think you know this has a great salary um whatever the factors might be I think oftentimes you make decisions that aren't really based in how well does it align with who I am um and I think when we start to understand what are the ways in which we want to show up in the world and use our talents to help be in service of others or to help um you know build something that is going to really have a positive impact on people that can help direct you toward companies or opportunities or teams where you're going to really feel like even if the work gets difficult or you're having a hard day, um, you're there for a reason. And, um, you know, I, I move out to the Bay Area and even though I'd had this strong career trajectory in traditional business, I was having a lot of trouble translating that to the tech industry. And I saw more and more that it was just absolutely critical that you have a technical background to be able to even be, um, you know, a leader or an executive as, as every industry was going through a digital transformation, um, whether it was finance, healthcare, shipping, media, um, all of these industries were, were becoming technology industries. And with women so underrepresented in the tech industry and so underrepresented in, in leadership, it just 
seemed very clear to me that that path needed to be bridged. And the fastest and most easiest way to do it was by supporting um, the talented, ambitious uh, women that were already in the industry so that they could succeed and they could be Become role models for women and girls who are going to enter later on. After uh, I graduated, my focus was I just need to get a job in, in my major. And it was during the dot-com days. I, I graduated in, in 2000. And, you know, interviewing is a skill. <laughs> it, it really is. You're showcasing your knowledge. You're trying to convince them to hire you. Uh, and, you know, that they, someone wants to invest in you and have the potential. And I remember just going interview after interview and, and basically failing. And during the dot-com days, if you could put a website up, you were a freaking genius. And I didn't, I majored in computer engineering, which was hardware and software, but the internet was just so brand new at that time. And so I taught myself front-end programming, you know, HTML, CSS, and just bring something, you know, to life. And in an interview, I showed them that, hey, I built this. And I felt like I fooled them because they're like, great, you're hired. And I'm like, oh my God, this is now, my goodness, this is what I'm going to be doing. And I really enjoyed it. And it was, it was, it was, it was amazing, but it was really hard for me. I'll be honest. I, I'm not a great front-end development. I was more back-end engineering and, you know, more on API level. And that's where I thrived, but it took me a while to figure that out. And I think that's, that's completely natural. So I loved building. I loved being an, an engineer. And I started to just say yes to every opportunity that was given to me, you know, with, with, you know, the job or, you know, some project. And I remember one time I started becoming in more intentional about my career and just like all these little steps. And, uh, and, and I went from this very staid sort of old school, traditional software development, very analogous school manufacturing um, to insanity, to chaos, uh, you know, a, a paradigm shift of thinking about what does it mean to do high tech? We're trying to release the first commercial web browser. Um, and for a while we were wildly successful. Uh, and then the rest of the industry, in particular Microsoft noticed and thus began the browser wars, which resulted ultimately in the creation of Mozilla.org as we released our source code uh, as a way to try and bring more community allyship, if you will, technical allyship um, to, to try and beat Microsoft and Internet Explorer back um, the, you know, the outcome of that story was that it, it was not successful. Netscape eventually faded away as, as a viable company. Uh, and Internet Explorer was the lead browser for, for decades afterwards, but Mozilla lived on. And, and the, the beauty of that was, I think the more important battle that we weren't officially fighting was one, which was that was the creation and, and the beginning of the modern open source movement. And because of that, not only do we still have Mozilla kicking around, fighting the good fight and trying to keep the internet a, a wonderful place to be uh, and keep our, our digital freedoms um, in place through advocacy and lobbying and all the things that, that Mozilla does. Um, big shout out to Mitchell Baker, who's uh, an amazing woman who's, who's led that organization for forever um, with, with grace and courage. Um, but it also spawned a whole bunch of other things. Um, for example, uh, at the time, one of the challenges of developing software was that, that operating systems were tightly coupled to companies producing hardware. Because the hardware was the actual business. We call it Silicon Valley, not because of software, because it was a chip company, a locale, right? So you, companies would produce hardware and you needed some software to run on it. You needed an operating system to run the software on. So 
all of the big companies had hardware. Hewlett Packard, IBM, DEC, everybody. Um, and they all had their own operating system. So if you're trying to develop software that anybody can use, you have to develop software on all of those platforms. Um, the success of Mozilla and how it did uh, licensing, which is a very staid legal discussion, but critically important, showed that you could do licensing that was more open, that was freer, but didn't require you to give your product away. And that was the main sort of mental leap that as an industry that we made, um, the difference between a free software, for example, versus open source. Um, and that made it more, that idea made it more compelling to companies. And companies started to realize, hey, we don't have to develop our own hardware and our own operating systems to develop software. Let's just all collectively start to agree that we're going to focus on particular operating systems and in particular oper operating systems that aren't tied to a particular vendor and thus open the opportunity for Linux. Um, and so Linux uh, swiftly became a very key player from like this, this you know, Linus Torvalds project, side project, because he didn't want to pay for a Unix uh, li license uh, to, to run his software. So he made his own version. And now everybody was using this version and companies actually thought this is a great idea. I don't want to have to support 15 different versions of my software. We'll just make it run on Linux. Um, and so companies actually invested and created an open source foundation in order to pay a sort of crowdsource pay for uh, Linux Corvalds and some of his contributors. And thus was uh, laid the grass, uh, laid the foundation for the Linux foundation, which eventually evolved, which has become probably one of the most, if not the most, uh, critically important open source organizations uh, on the planet. So I really encourage people to do this. And I think if you're exploring different areas um, that you haven't really bef before, it's a good opportunity to take a class or maybe um, advocate for a project that you might be interested in and see how it meshes with your kind of what you're looking for and what you enjoy. For a lot of technologies, we, we as a consumer expect to be able to use these things for free without recognizing the cost we're actually paying, which is a foundation of a significant amount of how the internet works, which is ad revenue, which is user data driven. Um, Apple uh, recently enacted some, some privacy changes that allow people to opt out, which, and then another company, I think it was Snap, said that they missed their revenue targets when they, when they made their quarterly announcements because so many people had turned off tracking for the Snap documents, like, and they were appalled that this was possible and, and failed to complete the loop of, do you understand that your revenue is based on invading people's privacy? Right? And that if you give them the choice, they don't want to pay for it. So what, is, what does that look like? Right? Um, people have tried to say, well, if the problem is ads and, 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 and social media and other similar forums basically monetizing the knowledge about you, are you willing to pay for it? Well, in my case, yes, I would be willing to pay for it. Um, I think others would be as well. But there's a critical mass that needs to happen. There's a mental shift that needs to happen. And that's the thing I'm wondering whether or not it can happen and will it happen. I think a big tip is to find your people and your network where you can bounce ideas off of in a space of like openness and trust um, and try to make that network as diverse as possible. So if you can have um, friends in that network across different industries, um, that's even better. So you get different perspectives. Um, I've been really lucky to have a great group of peers that um, are in the 
financial industry and the manufacturing industry um, and also in the tech industry um, that that can give me good advice um, and help me move forward and and have uh, very different um, perspectives to bring to the table that I can then work on um, taking the, the gems out of the different perspectives and, and building my own approach. Yeah, I, I remember having a lot of walking meetings and talking, unpacking imposter syndrome, not only for that, uh, but I think that that just happens, right? We, we have all of these um, ideas about what we're doing and um, if they're okay and, and what that looks like. Uh, I have to admit, even just last month, uh, my wife actually called me out for this. Thank you to my wife if she hears this recording. Uh, called me out because I was sitting at the table with a software engineer and we were just meeting for the first time. He's kind of like loosely related, like through through her family uh, to me. Um, and so uh, he introduced himself as a software engineer and I said something like I'm um, a product manager, not meaning that that was my title, but that that's what I did. And it was, it was just not about not owning that kind of executive space. And um, I think imposter syndrome creeps in in all kinds of ways. And she later asked me, why did you do that? Why didn't you just say who you are? Mm-hmm. And I kind of said, I just didn't have the energy for it. And I think that's something that happens um, for women in leadership and, and maybe for other genders also. Um, but sometimes you just don't have the energy to carry your confidence forward. Um, and, and that's reality. Uh, yeah. But I think on a, on a day-to-day basis, I think um, leading this organization has been one of the greatest honors of my life. And the people that I've met along the way and the teams that have, have come together around this movement um, have taught me so much about what it takes to lead and organize and coordinate um, and step back and make space for in terms of getting work done. Thanks for taking this trip down memory lane with inspirational words from some of the amazing women in tech that have been on our podcast. For now, we suggest using this break to catch up on all the old episodes or re-listen to some of your favorites. We'll see you again at the top of the year with new weekly releases starting the first week of January. Thanks again for listening and remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform.